Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at the particular particularbaptist.net. And if you have not subscribed on our YouTube channel already, go ahead and do that. We're actually almost at 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. So help us get to that point to uh, break 1,000 by subscribing to our channel and hit the bell to be notified of any new videos, any new content that is put on the channel. And this is also a milestone for the show because this is our 100th episode. So we have, uh, you know, it's hard to believe that, you know, we had our first episode over two years ago. And we've come a long way since then in quality and quantity. So we thank you for, uh, you know, our supporters who have helped us to get where we are and continue to support the show and listen and send encouraging messages. Um, we hope that the show continues to be helpful and, and a blessing to all. Um, but with that, I'll turn it over to Sean to introduce our talk. I will actually, I will say real quick um, for next week, uh, our next week's topic, we're going to be starting a new series. Uh, we're going to be going through Dennis Prager's um, series on the 10 commandments with a critical eye, not really a, I don't think <laughs> there'll be much to say positive about that series, um, but it will take us into a study of the 10 commandments, the law and the law of God in light of that series by Dennis Prager. So we hope to um, plow through that series starting next week, but I'll turn it over to Sean. All right. Yeah. So today will be our uh, last day in um, first Clement. Uh, we've been going through the uh, the book of first Clement, which is a uh, early church writing um, uh, could be first century, might be very early second century. It's a little bit disputed, but um uh, it's a, uh, a letter from the church at Rome to the church at Corinth that had apparently uh, kicked out their leadership. And while we've been going through, we've just been taking notes of uh, what um, Clement, who is purportedly the author, thought about certain things. Of, uh, what did he thought? Of, what he thought about church government, um, what he thought the gospel was. Uh, and it uh, matches the Protestant gospel, not the Roman Catholic gospel. Um as well as uh, just other things like what he thought about scripture, how he used scripture and what he thought was scripture. Uh, so today's our last day and we'll just be continuing to look at that. Yep. So with further, without further ado, we'll go ahead and read the last um, 14 chapters. Shouldn't be very long. And then we'll get into some discussion um, on the last part of the book. So starting in first Clement chapter 50, beginning in verse one. Ye see, dearly beloved, how great and marvelous a thing is love, and there is no declaring its perfection. Who is sufficient to be found therein, save those to whom God shall vouchsafe it? Let us therefore entreat and ask for his mercy, that we may be found blameless in love, standing apart from the factitiousness of men. All the generations from Adam unto this day have passed away, but they that by God's grace were perfected in love dwell in the abode of the pious, and they shall be made manifest in the visitation of the kingdom of God. For it is written, Enter into the closet for a very little while, while mine anger and mine wrath shall pass away, and I will remember a good day, and will raise you from your tombs. Blessed are we, dearly beloved, if we should be doing the commandments of God in concord of love, to the end of our sins, to the end that our sins may be through love be forgiven us. 
For it is written, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall, not, shall impute no sin, neither is guile in his mouth. This declaration of blessedness was pronounced upon them that have been elected by God through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. For all our transgressions which have been committed through any of the wiles of the adversary, let us entreat that we may obtain forgiveness. Yea, and they also who set, up, who set themselves up as leaders of faction and division ought to look to the common ground of hope. <clears throat> For such as walk in fear and love desire that they themselves should fall into suffering rather than their neighbors. And they pronounce condemnation against themselves rather than against the harmony which hath been handed down to us nobly and righteously. For it is good for a man to make confession of his trespasses rather than to harden his heart, as the heart of those was hardened who made sedition against Moses, the servant of God, whose condemnation was clearly manifest. For they went down to Hades alive, and death shall be their shepherd. Pharaoh and his hosts and all the rulers of Egypt, their chariots and their horsemen, were overwhelmed in the depths of the Red Sea, and perished for none other reason but their foolish hearts were hardened after the after that the signs and wonders have been wrought in the land of Egypt by the hand of Moses, the servant of God. The master, brethren, hath need of nothing at all. He, he desireth not anything of man, save to confess unto him. For the elect, David saith, I will confess unto the Lord, and it shall please him more than a young calf that groweth horns and hooves. Let the poor see it and rejoice. And again he saith, Sacrifice to God, a sacrifice of praise, and pay thy vows to the Most High, and call upon me, in the day of thine affliction, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. For a sacrifice unto God is a broken spirit. For ye know, and know well, the sacred scriptures, dearly beloved, and ye have searched into the oracles of God. We write these things, therefore, to put you in remembrance. When Moses went up on into the mountain and spent forty days and forty nights in fasting and humiliation, God said unto him, Moses, Moses, come down, quickly hence, for my people whom thou leadest forth from the land of Egypt, have wrought iniquity. They have transgressed quickly out of the way which thou didst command into them. unto them. They have made for themselves molten images. And the Lord said unto him, I have spoken unto thee uh, once and twice, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, it is stiff-necked. Let me destroy them utterly, and I will blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make... Of thee, a nation great and wonderful, and numerous more than his than this. And Moses said, Nay, not so. Lord, forgive this people their sin, or blot me out of the book of the living. O mighty love, O unsurpassable perfection, the servant is bold with his master. He asketh forgiveness for the multitude, or he demandeth that himself also be blotted out with them. Who therefore is noble among you? Who is compassionate? Who is fulfilled with love? Let him say, if by reason of me there be faction and strife and divisions, I retire, I depart, whether ye will, and I do that which is ordered by the people. Only let the flock of Christ be at peace with its duly appointed presbyters. He that shall have done this shall win for himself great renown in Christ, and every place will receive him, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Thus they have done and will do, and live as citizens of that kingdom, which bringeth no regrets. But to bring forward examples of Gentiles also, of many kings and rulers, when some reason of pestilence pressed upon them, being taught by oracles, have delivered themselves over to death, 
that they might rescue their fellow citizens through their own blood. Many have retired from their own cities that they may have no more seditions. We know that many among ourselves have delivered themselves to bondage that they might ransom others. Many have sold themselves to slavery and receiving the price paid for themselves to have fed others. Many women being strengthened through the grace of God have performed many manly deeds. The blessed Judith, when the city was... uh, well, I'm not even going to try and pronounce that word. Um, asked of what is it? Beleaguered. Beleaguered. Okay. Ask of the elders that she might be suffered to go forth into the camp of the aliens. So she exposed herself to peril and went forth for love of her country and of her people, which were beleaguered. And the Lord delivered Holofernes into the hand of a woman. To no less peril did Esther also, who was perfect in faith expose herself that she might deliver the twelve tribes of Israel when they were on the point to perish. For though her fasting and her humiliation, through her for through her fasting and her humiliation, she entreat she entreated the all seeing master, the God of the ages, and he, seeing the humility of her soul, delivered the people for whose sake she encountered the peril. Therefore let us also make intercession for them that are in any transgression, that forbearance and humility may be given to them to the end that they may yield not unto us, but unto the, unto the will of God. For so shall the compassionate remembrance of them with God, the saints be fruitful unto them and perfect. Let us accept chastisement, whereat no man ought to be vexed, dearly beloved. The admonition which we give one to another is good and, and exceedingly useful, for it joineth us unto the will of God. For thus saith the holy word, The Lord hath indeed chastised me, and hath not delivered me over unto death. For whom the Lord loveth, he chastiseth, chasteneth, the scourgeth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. For the righteous, it is said, shall chasten me in mercy, and shall reprove me. But let not the mercy of sinners anoint my head. And again he saith, Blessed is the man whom the Lord hath approved, and refuse not thou the admonition of the Almighty. For he causeth pain, and he restoreth again. He hath smitten, and his hands have healed. Six times shall he rescue thee from afflictions, and at the seventh no evil shall touch thee. In famine he shall deliver thee from death, and in war he shall release thee from the arm of the sword, and from the scourge of the tongue he shall hide thee, and thou shalt not be afraid when evils approach. Thou shalt laugh at the unrighteous and the wicked, and of the wild beasts thou shalt not be afraid, for wild beasts shall be at peace with thee. Then thou shalt know that thy house shall be at peace, and the abode of thy tabernacle shall not go wrong. And thou shalt know that thy seed is many, and thy children as the plenteous herbage of the field. And thou shalt come to the grave as the ripe corn reaped in due season, or as the heap of the threshing floor gathered together at the right time. You see, dearly beloved, how great protection there is for them that are chastened by the master, for being a kind father, he chasteneth us to the end that we may obtain mercy through his holy chastisement. Ye therefore that laid the foundation of the sedition, submit yourselves unto the presbyters and receive chastisement under repentance, bending the knees of your heart. Learn to submit yourselves, laying aside the arrogant and proud stubbornness of your tongue, for it is better for you to be found little in the flock of Christ and to have your name on God's roll, than to be had an exceeding honor, and yet be cast out from the hope of him. For thus saith the all-virtuous wisdom, 
Behold, I will pour out for you a saying of my breath, and I will teach you my word. Because I called, and ye obeyed not. And I held out words, and ye heeded not, but made my counsels of none effect, and were disobedient unto my reproofs. Therefore I also will laugh at your destruction, and will rejoice over you when ruin cometh upon you. And when confusion overtaketh you suddenly, and your overthrow is at hand like a whirlwind. And when ye call upon me, yet will I not hear you. Evil men shall seek me and not find me, for they hated wisdom and chose not the fear of the Lord. Neither would they give heed unto my counsels, but mocked at my reproofs. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way and shall be filled with their own ungodliness. For because they wronged babes, they shall be slain, and inquisition shall destroy the ungodly. But he that heareth me shall dwell safely, trusting in hope, and shall be quiet from all fear of all evil. Let us therefore be obedient unto his most holy and glorious name, thereby escaping the threatenings which were spoken of old by the mouth of wisdom against them that which disobey that we may dwell safely, trusting in the most holy name of his majesty. Receive our counsel, and ye shall have no occasion of regret. For as God liveth, and the Lord Jesus Christ liveth, and the Holy Spirit, who are the faith and hope of the elect, so surely shall he, who with lowliness of mind and instant gentleness hath, without regretfulness, performed the ordinances and commandments that are given by God. Be enrolled, and have a name among the number of them, that are saved through Jesus Christ, through whom is the glory unto him forever and ever. Amen. But if certain persons should be disobedient unto the words spoken by him through us, let them understand that they will entangle themselves in no slight transgression and danger. But we shall be guiltless of this sin, and we will ask with instancy of prayer and supplication that the creator of the universe may guard intact unto the end the number that hath been numbered of his elect throughout the whole world, through his beloved son, Jesus Christ, through whom he called us from darkness to light, from ignorance to the full knowledge of the glory of his name. Grant unto us, Lord, that we may set our hope on thy name, which is the primal source of all creation, and open the eyes of our hearts, that we may know thee, who alone abidest, highest in the lofty, holy in the holy, who layest low in the insolent of the proud, who settest the lowly on high and bringest the lofty low, who makest rich and makest poor, who killest and makest alive, who alone art the benefactor of spirits and the God of all flesh, who lookest into the abysses, who scannest the work of man, the succor of them that are in peril, the savior of them that are in despair, the creator and overseer of every spirit who multipliest the nations upon the earth and has chosen out from all men those that love thee through Jesus Christ, thy beloved son, through whom thou didst instruct us, didst sanctify us, didst honor us. We beseech thee, Lord and Master, to be our help and succor. Save those among us who are in tribulation. Have mercy on the lowly. Lift up the fallen. Show thyself unto the needy. Heal the ungodly, convert the wanderers of thy people, feed the hungry, release our prisoners, raise up the weak, comfort the faint-hearted. Let all the Gentiles know that thou art God alone, and Jesus Christ is thy son, and we are thy people, and the sheep of thy pasture. Thou through thine operations didst make manifest the everlasting fabric of the world, 
thou, Lord, didst create the earth. Thou that art faithful throughout all generations, righteous in thy judgments, marvelous in strength and excellence. Thou that art wise in creating and prudent in establishing that which thou hast made, that thou art good in the things which are seen and faithful with them that trust on thee, pitiful and compassionate. Forgive us our iniquities and our unrighteousness and our transgressions and shortcomings. Lay not to our account every sin of thy servants and thine handmaidens, but cleanse us wholly with the cleansing of thy truth, and guide our steps to walk in holiness and righteousness and singleness of heart, and to do such things as are good and well-pleasing in thy sight and in the sight of our rulers. Yea, Lord, make thy face to shine upon us in peace for our good, that we might be sheltered by thy mighty hand and delivered from every sin by thine uplifted arm. And deliver us from that, uh, from them that hate us wrongfully. Give concord and peace to us and to all that dwell on the earth, as thou gavest to our fathers, when they called on thee in faith and truth with holiness, that they may be saved. While we render obedience to thine almighty and most excellent name, to our rulers and governors, and to our rulers and governors upon the earth. Thou, Lord and Master, hast given them the power and sovereignty through thine excellent and most unspeakable might, that we, knowing the glory and honor which thou hast given them, may submit ourselves unto them in nothing resisting thy will. Grant unto them, therefore, O Lord, health and peace, concord, stability, that they may administer the government which thou hast given them without failure. For thou, O heavenly Master, King of ages, Givest to the sons of men glory and honor and power over all things that are upon the earth. Do thou, Lord, direct their counsel according to that which is good and pleasing in thy sight, that administering in the peace and gentleness with godliness the power which thou hast given them, that they may obtain thy favor. O thou who alone art able to do these things, and things far more exceeding good than these for us, we praise thee through the high priest and guardian of our souls, Jesus Christ, through whom be the glory and the majesty unto thee, both now and for all generations and forever and ever. Amen. As touching those things which befit our religion and are most useful for a virtuous life to those that would guide their steps in holiness and righteousness, we have written fully unto you, brethren. For concerning faith and repentance and genuine love and temperance and sobriety and patience, we have handled every argument putting in remembrance that ye ought to please Almighty God in righteousness and truth and long-suffering with holiness, laying aside malice and pursuing concord in love and peace, being instant in gentleness, even as our fathers, of whom we spake before, pleased him, being lowly-minded toward their Father and God and Creator and toward all men. And we have put you in mind of these things which more glad of these things the more gladly, since we knew well that we were writing to men who are faithful and highly accounted and have dil diligently searched into the oracles of the teaching of God. Therefore, it is right for us to give heed to so great and so many examples and to submit the neck and uh, occupying the place of obedience to take our side with them that are the leaders of our souls, that ceasing from this foolish dissension, we may obtain, attain unto the goal which lieth before us in truthfulness, keeping aloof from every fault. For ye will have us great joy and gladness if ye render obedience unto the things which things written by us through the Holy Spirit, 
and root out the unrighteous anger of your jealousy, according to the entreaty which we have made for peace and concord in this letter. And we have also sent faithful and prudent men that have walked among us from youth unto old age unblameably, who shall also be witnesses between you and us. And this we have done, that ye might know that we have had and still have every solitude, that ye should be speedily at peace. Finally, may the all-seeing God and Master of Spirits and Lord of all flesh, who chose the Lord Jesus Christ and us through him for a peculiar people, grant unto every soul that is called after his excellent and holy name, faith, fear, peace, patience, long-suffering, temperance, chastity, and soberness, that they may be well-pleasing unto his name through our high priest and guardian, Jesus Christ, through whom unto him be glory and majesty, might and honor, both now and forever and ever. Amen. Now send ye back speedily unto our messengers, Claudius Ephibus and Valerius Beto, together with Fortunatus also, in peace and with joy to the end, that they may be more that they may the more quickly report the peace and concord which is prayed for and earnestly desired by us that we also may the more speedily rejoice over your good order. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and with all men in all places who have called, who have been called by God and through him, and through whom be glory and honor and power and greatness and eternal dominion unto him from the ages past and forever and ever. Amen. We made it. <laughs> we made it through the book of First Clement. I will say that uh, he clearly at some point picked up on Paul's style of having very long run on sentences. <laughs> and and um, calling out people at the end, either mm-hmm. positively or negatively, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there seems to be a lot of parallels in style. With yes. Paul's writings here. Yeah. All right, Sean, um, you want to start us off with 50 verse three? Yeah, I've got to scroll all the way back now to uh, to get to there. Um, but yes, I did have something to say about First Clement um, 53. Um, so we had talked about in previous episodes how uh, Clement cites scripture, although he won't necessarily cite it exactly. Um, sometimes he seems to be paraphrasing or he seems to be doing composite citations. And I just wanted to look at... Um, this one right here. Um, and it's, uh, for it is written, enter into the closet for a little while until mine anger and mine wrath shall pass away. And I shall remember a good day and will raise you from your tombs. So this at least seems to be in part a citation from Isaiah 26, although it's, it's not exact. Um, Isaiah 26, uh, verse 20, come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Um, so you can see this This is very uh, reminiscent, uses some of the same language, although uh, some of the things are missing. But there's also the part at the end of Clement uh, 53, which is, um, and I will remember a good day and I will raise you from your tombs now that isn't found directly anywhere in the scriptures as far as i can see 
So this, um, it might be a paraphrase uh, composite citation with Ezekiel 37, um, which is the uh, the dry bones. Um, and this comes from uh, verse uh, 12. Therefore prophecy and say to them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then shall you know that I am Lord when I opened your graves. Um, so that might be what he's going for here. Um, in that case, it would be a composite citation. Um, or it could be that he's just misremembering the scriptures like we, we saw or we discussed in an earlier episode. It doesn't seem like he's always quoting exactly. So he's either paraphrasing or he's doing it from memory and not always getting it quite right. Um, it's not like he literally had a Bible app in front of him and was able to search for things. If he wanted to cite something, he would have had to remember, okay, where is that in the scriptures? Oh, it's somewhere in the Psalms. And then, you know, start flipping through. Uh, well, I guess it probably would have been a scroll. Maybe it would have been a book. I don't know. But if it was the Psalms and he had to go, go through all the scrolls to find it, that's probably not what he was doing. He was probably just uh, citing from memory. Um but I just wanted to bring that up as a as an interesting note that this is either an example of him doing a composite citation or just not getting the scripture exactly right. And even if he was just quoting from memory, it seems like he had a pretty good memory because yeah, it's, yeah, it it's does. similar enough to where you can go, OK, that looks like it's probably that verse over there, yeah. even if he didn't get it exactly right. Well, my suspicion, if you were to just ask me about it, is he probably did have Hebrews in front of him just because he seems to get Hebrews spot on and maybe a couple. Well, actually I think um, he didn't necessarily get the quotation, one of the quotations from the gospel exactly right, but that could have just been a paraphrase. Um, but it's my suspicion that he did at least have Hebrews in front of him, but just having the one in front of you doesn't mean that he also had everything else and was prepared to go searching right. through everything. Hebrews is a short enough letter where I could see him uh, being like, Oh, I need to go look for that reference and then looking it up which is a little bit different than the entire Bible. John, he didn't have the entire Bible in front of him? What? What are you talking about? Well, I mean, maybe he did. I don't I don't know. But right. even if he did, it doesn't mean that um, he was necessarily, he remembered every single spot, right. quotation he wanted, and um, was about to go look to make sure he got it exactly right. It may have been more convenient to just quote it off the top yeah. of his head than go and look it oh, up. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would have been a lot of yeah. work this uh possibly but yeah the i mean these guys were men working with the mm -hmm. whoever wrote this was using whatever tools they had at the time you know we can't it's easy to read back anachronistically and apply our standards of accuracy and research into what they would do they they didn't necessarily um, have those advantages that we do today um but moving on to in the same chapter chapter 50 verse 5 we see justification coming out again. Um, it says, for it is written, blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin, neither is guile in his mouth. And verse 6, the declaration of blessedness was pronounced upon them that have been elected by God through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So verse 5 is a quote from Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2 which Paul quotes in Romans 4 in talking about the one who believes um, by faith and is not uh, using his own works as merit for salvation. So this is clearly a reference to justification. And 
you even see the writer of Clement using this language of imputation. Not only does he quote Psalm 32, but he uses the term declaration. It's a declaration of blessedness. He's not talking about a subjective change in the person like you would find in a Roman Catholic understanding of righteousness of infusion. He's talking about a declaration of blessedness, which following from Psalm 32 has to be imputation. So uh, not only does he have his understanding of how we are saved correct, he also is using, or whoever's writing this, is using very technical language and being very precise in how they're communicating that. So that's um, an interesting note. And that carries on from earlier on in the book, where he was clearly talking about being justified by faith um, and not of our works. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. Um, then in 52, chapter 52, verse 2, he says, For the elect, David saith, I will confess unto the Lord, and it shall please him more than a young calf that groweth horns and hooves. Let the poor see it and rejoice. In verse 3, and again he saith, Sacrifice to God, a sacrifice of praise, and pay thy vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of thine affliction, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Um, Verse 2 here may be allusion to Psalm 69, um, and if so, it would show kind of a, a type, anti-type um, vision here, because he uses the term elect, right? And he's saying that David is talking about the elect. So he's clearly teaching predestination. Sorry, Arminians. Sorry, provisionists. This is not an early church. Your view is not an early church understanding, um, at least as seen from here. But it seems that the writer of Clement was seeing that the Old Testament was looking forward to the New Testament church and that there is this typology. There's a, a type being shown in what David is saying and an anti-type being fulfilled in the elect. And that probably means that the author also understood this to talk about Old Testament saints too. I don't see why there wouldn't that wouldn't be in this person's mind. But at, at the very least, it's referring to the church. So it, it's interesting to see kind of this um, this typology being brought out here, which we would agree with um, as Reformed biblical Christians. We would say that, you know, what David's talking about, um, at least to some extent, um, is probably referring to uh, the elect. But the typology, this mindset of type and anti-type from the Old Testament to the New is um, something we absolutely would agree with. But it's just interesting to see that, this type of hermeneutic was being utilized this early. There wasn't this disjointedness between the Old and the New Testament. It was seen as a unified whole, the Old pointing to fulfillment in the New, which is not how a dispensationalist would read their Bibles. Um, so it's very interesting to see that very early on um, in uh, church history. Uh, anything you want to add, Sean? Uh, no, not to that. Um, I guess I'll move on to First Clement 55. Yep. All right, so I just wanted to briefly comment on this. First uh, Clement 55 too. We know that among many among ourselves have delivered themselves to bondage that they might ransom others. Many have sold themselves to slavery and receiving the price paid for themselves have fed others. Um that's just it's that's a remarkable uh, statement there. I have no reason to doubt what Clement is saying is uh, is true here, but it's a remarkable statement that the uh, the early Christians were so filled with love that they were 
selling themselves into slavery that they would be able to feed those around them. That is, um, that's, uh, it, it, it amazed me when I read that. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I have seen Christian love, obviously, uh, in my walk. It's not something you see in, in modern America. No. Um, just to see that, that, <laughs> that love on display. So I just wanted to bring that up. No, that's a great point. And that kind of, it's in line with what we see in Acts 2, right? Mm-hmm. Where the church is having everything in common and they're bringing things to help each other and, and fulfill practical needs. Um, although I, I would say this, that selling yourself into slavery goes above and beyond the call of duty. Um, that's a very, that's utterly divulging yourself of, of any self comfort or any, um, love of your own life to do that, to ensure that they're, that others around you are taken care of. Um, so what, it, that probably was a tremendous testimony yes. to those around him. Yeah. Clearly it, it seems like it was based on the fact that the writer of Clement comments on that specifically. Mm-hmm. Well, you wonder, um, how, christianity so spread through the roman empire and obviously it's the spirit of god at work we're not we're not gonna just say uh, it was naturalistic means but if you did have that example as a testimony to the truth that people so believe this message they were selling themselves into slavery that has to be a powerful testimony for the unbelieving world oh yeah that would just flabbergast why would you do that you know and, and yeah you're like, wait, okay, I want to know why they're doing that. Yeah. And then that could open up opportunities um, to talk about Christ. Now, we're not advocating that you sell yourself into slavery. We're just talking about historical mm-hmm. examples here. Mm-hmm. Um, we can show Christian love in different ways without having to do that. But in their specific situation, um, they felt it necessary to do that. Um, and it is you know, a testimony and a reminder to us that we are to love the brethren. Um, impractical ways as Christians. All right. Chapter 55, verse four. Um, there is a unique, an interesting character that's brought out here. Um, an extra biblical character, I believe. Um, it's a woman named Judith. So in verse four, the writer says the blessed Judith, when the city was, uh, beleaguered, I'm going to butcher that word. Beleaguered. Uh, Beleaguered. (laughs) (laughs) I need I need the smart sheep here to help me out. Um, asked of the elders that she might be suffered to go forth into the camp of the aliens. So she exposed herself to peril and went forth for love of her country and of her people, which were beleaguered. And the Lord delivered Holofernes, I guess I say, into the hand of a woman. So this is, uh, it appears to be an extra biblical character. And I found an interesting article, a scholarly article on, this particular character specifically in its usage in First Clement uh, is an article called Judith and the Elders of First Clement by Janelle Peters. Don't know anything about this person who wrote the article, um, but I thought it was an interesting take because I, I was trying to find some information on this particular character and this came up. Um, so I'll read just a little bit from the article that might help. Um so the Janelle Peters says, quote, the, the anonymous author's portrayal, and this is talking about the writer of Clement, portrayal resonates with the second temple descriptions of Judith as a military leader whose triumph over foreign enemies enabled her to establish civic precedence. As first Clement is the first Christian citation of Judith, her introduction must have had some particular meaning. And then she goes on to say, originally composed in Hebrew, Judith is widely believed to have been translated into Greek, 
with the reign of Shalamizion uh, Alexandria, 76 to 67 BCE in mind. Tal Ilian argues that Judith, along with Esther and Susanna, served as propaganda for the Hasmonean queen's uh, coronation. So, and, and then she goes on to talk about how this under in talking about Judith in this way um, appears to have gone against cultural norms of how women were understood at the time, because the writer of first Clement presents Judith as a strong woman and she's, and the author is presenting her as um, not timid, not weak. And, and even the author of first Clement present, I think presented women as kind of the weaker vessel mindset, which probably would have been more of the culturally understood uh, view at the time. But then he talks about Judith as being a strong woman. Um, and he uses, you know, an, another reference, manly women, right. Or, or something like that, that we just read. So there seems to be this countercultural understanding like um, of Judith as being a strong woman as it relates to um, helping out uh, these other people. So it, it seems the point seems to be that the, the author of Clement seems to be including women deliberately uh, in here and as such is going against those cultural norms. And this is somewhat in line with how Paul would present women. Um, while he does, while the scriptures do talk about the women as the weaker vessel, women are not seen as inferior or second class citizens in the scriptures. Um, with marriage, for instance, Ephesians 5, 22, 25, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So there's this compliment, uh, there's this complimenting that's to go on in marriage. The husband loves his wife and the wife submits. So there, it's not a lording over his wife it's a loving of his wife and she willingly submits to him they're not seen it, the husband is not um standing over her in a cruel authoritarian way she's not seen as inferior in that sense and then uh we see in romans 8 15 through 17 paul says for you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out abba father the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So men and women in the kingdom of God are joint heirs of the blessings that we have in Christ. They're joint heirs of those things that um, that we will receive. So they're seen on an level playing field in that sense. They're not seen as second-class citizens. They're not seen as inferior as would have been understood culturally. Um, in Christ, we are um, all on equal footing um, in a certain sense. So it, there seems to be some parallels with how Paul treats women here as well. Um, but I thought it was interesting. It was it stood out because it was like, who's Judith? I had never heard of that before. And it sounds like it's an extra biblical book um, that was originally written in Hebrew that was translated to Greek in reference by the writer of Clement. Um, but anything you want to comment on that with Sean? Yeah. So when I looked it up, I thought it was, um, it was coming from the book of Judith, which is an apocryphal book. Um, mm. So it would actually be in the canon of uh, the Roman Catholic church and the, yep. uh, the Greek Orthodox or the Orthodox church, excuse me. Um, so my mind immediately started going to, well, all right, he's quoting a, um, an apocryphal. Well, he's not quoting, he's alluding to an apocryphal work here. Uh, what does that mean? Um, does, 
does Clement consider this to be scripture? Because that would be interesting, obviously, just to have such an early reference to one of the apocryphal works being um, uh, scripture. Um, so I was uh, so I started thinking about it. It is interesting. The very next uh, the next section, he goes on to talk about Esther, which obviously we would agree is scripture. Um, but nowhere in the section does it explicitly say that um, he's quoting from scripture, because a lot of times he'll say, like, thus saith the holy word or as the scripture saith, Right. But he doesn't say it here. And it's not a quotation. It's just a summary. And we've seen that uh, Clement is perfectly willing to allude to things that aren't necessarily scripture. For example, we were just talking about the um, the uh, the people that had sold themselves into slavery. That's just alluding to an example that was commonly known and wasn't contained in the scriptures. Uh, we've also seen that he talked about um, the phoenix because apparently he thought uh, the phoenix was a real, a real creature and how it uh, flew to Alexandria and all that. Um, so I'm inclined to say um, that he's probably not referring to it as scripture. I, I, will, I can't say that definitively because he doesn't specify one way or the other. Um, it would surprise me if in, in this early of a time, and especially someone who appears to have potentially known the Apostle Paul, that uh, he would already be wrong on what the scriptures are. Uh, but I won't, I won't say that for, uh, for certain definitively there's just not enough evidence one way or another uh but i just wanted to point out that while it appears that he's citing judith he doesn't explicitly say anywhere that it's scripture yeah yeah they, he may have just understood it as a helpful work but not yeah as scripture because it is it is interesting that he is careful to point out things that are scripture um at least generally speaking although like when i uh quoted psalm 32 he doesn't say either way either yeah but it's it doesn't give any evidence that it is scripture either. Um, and then what we know about the apocryphal works, you know, they weren't stored up in the temple um, and clearly not considered by the Jews to be scripture, probably wouldn't have been considered by this person, whoever wrote it to be scripture, given probably the widespread um, Judaism at the time in the early church. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is interesting. It definitely stood out. It caught my attention when I read, I was like, what? Okay, never heard of that before. Um, so it, it was an interesting study. Um, there's just a lot you can mine out of those couple of verses, historically speaking. Okay, what what's the historical background of Judith and where did it come from? And you can go down this long rabbit trail. Um, but yeah, I thought it was interesting. All right, and then I wanted to just briefly quote from First uh, Clement 56, 3 and 4. Um, For thus saith the holy word, the Lord hath indeed chastened me and hath delivered me and hath not delivered me over to, unto death for whom the Lord loveth. He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So verse uh, uh, three says for thus saith the Holy word. And then he quotes, and then he quotes again from Hebrews. And this is just one more um, example that um, Clement sees Hebrews as scripture, as the Holy word. So we have a very early reference to the idea uh, or to a, a New Testament book as scripture, which is what we, we would expect. Although I know that um, some people will argue that, oh, the, the Christians didn't have a canon settled. They, the, the, there are all these books floating around or whatever. But um, here we have a very early citation that, nope, Hebrews is scripture. All right. 
Um, first Clement 57, 1. Uh, now we're going to start talking about some of the church governance um, it, as it relates to this book. Uh, Ye therefore that laid the foundation of the sedition, submit yourselves to the presbyters and receive chastisement under repentance, bending the knees of your heart. So he's calling the people in that church, those who have fallen into sin, um, to submit to the presbyters. And we've already, I think we've already talked about this, but the presbyters is referring to elders, right? Presbyters and bishops, those those terms can be used interchangeably in this sense to refer to elders in the church. So he's telling them to submit to them, to, to, to repent and submit to the presbyters. So there seems to be an element of church discipline here, right? They're being corrected, and then they're to turn from their sin, and in doing so, this is a submission in, in doing so they're to submit to their uh, to their elders. Now there seems to be elder led church discipline here, at least that's how I see it. And this seems to be very much in line in what you know like a reformed church, a, a reformed Baptist church would follow. Um, a Presbyterian vein would probably follow a different um, understanding going the presbyters would be understood in a broader sense outside of the church, um, the local church, I should say. Um, with possibly local elders, but with a a session or a presbytery overseeing that, um, that's probably where they would go. While we would see a congregational form of church government with elder led um, an elder led church with congregational consent, um, which would separate itself from any outside entity overseeing its affairs. Um, so there seems to be this exhortation to have the church take care of its own locally, right? The, the presbyters in that church are to take care of this issue. And this really is, a I think, an allusion back to where Christ gives the keys of the kingdom to the church. Matthew 16, where Jesus is talking to Peter, saying, on this rock I will build my church, um, which Roman Catholics take as their own and say, look, Peter is the first pope, and from there is this line of papal authority, um, which is ridiculous. We see in Matthew 18... The keys of the kingdom are also being referred to as it relates to church discipline. And Jesus is speaking to all of the apostles, not just Peter. So this is not uh, the keys of the kingdom are not just given um, to Peter. And this concept of the keys of the kingdom, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 19, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, so this is really the power to reveal the truth about God, his gospel, to pronounce doctrine in an authoritative way. And they had authority from God to put people out of the church in under certain circumstances. And this is really the keys that are given um, to the church. Uh, John Gill said on the keys of kingdom, he said, the keys of it are, light, are abilities to open and explain the gospel truths and a mission and commission from Christ to make use of them. So that could be in teaching, that could be in preaching, that could be an exhortation, rebuke, etc. So it's using the truths of God in an authoritative way that is not given to any mere man, but is really passed down um, to those who lead the church. And these would have been qualified elders. They were to lead the church of God. Um, we see this in Titus chapter 1. Paul lays out the qualification for elders. But then he says what their duties are to be, uh, starting in verse 10. He says, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, 
whose mouths must be stopped to subvert whole households, teaching things that, uh, which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables, the commandments of men who turn from the truth. Now, this is right after Paul lays out the qualification for elders. So he lays out their qualifications, and then he's saying what their duties are. You're to teach the truth about God. You're to do so with authority, and you're to rebuke false teaching and false teachers, right? So this is in line with what we see with the keys of the kingdom. They're to enact discipline and authority and teach the truth about God in an authoritative way. So we see this this role, I guess, of the keys of the kingdom being passed on to the elders of the church by the apostles directly. Okay, so we can't just assume that these keys stopped with the apostles. You know, we as cessationists believe certain things stopped with the apostles passing, um, but this is not one of those things. This is established in local churches through elders um, and the church as a whole um, for certain things. It's to continue in a normative way. Um, so, and, and we even see our confession talking about this with regards to authority. Um, but these keys have been passed on, and the elders are required to teach. So this is another area where we see it being passed on. Uh, deacons were not required to teach. That was not a qualification, but the elders were. And teaching is in line with the keys of the kingdom. So again, we see this concept being passed on to those who have um, authority. That doesn't mean that gifted brethren can't teach. Our confession talks about this in 2611. Um, but we do see... Um, that this concept of keys of the kingdom is primarily held in the church as a whole and in the elders. So when we see Paul, or I keep saying Paul with regards to Hebrews, we don't really know who wrote Hebrews. Um, depends on what side you take. But in Hebrews 13, there is this call to submit to um, the leaders of the churches, and this would have been elders, right? Uh, John Gill said, the word may be rendered guides or leaders, for such point out of the way of peace, life, and salvation to men and direct them to Christ and guide them to the understanding of the scriptures and the truths of the gospel and lead them in the paths of faith and holiness and our examples uh, to them. Notice this is the same concept of the keys of the kingdom that we've already talked about. Again, being the leaders of the church are you know, carrying out and utilizing the keys of the kingdom. And then the writer of Hebrews is saying that they are to submit to those men. Uh, which is what the writer of Clement is telling them the church there to do. So we do see parallels there. And given what we know about the writer of Clement clearly utilizing Hebrews and having at least some of Hebrews, it's likely that um, they would have been pulling from these concepts found in Hebrews 13 to submit to your leaders and, and uh, through repentance and, and ultimately submitting to them out of humility and repentance. So it's really neat to see, you know, how all these things tie together. We see the writer of Clement pulling from the book of Hebrews and likely in utilizing what appears to be some of these concepts that we find in uh, the book of Hebrews and other places um, of Scripture. Uh, anything you want to add to that, Sean? Uh, no, I think you, uh, you got it there. Um, right. I'll just move on to my last point then. Uh, I wanted to read from uh, 1 Clement 59.2. Um, 
be we shall be guiltless of the sin, and we will ask with instancy of prayer and supplication that the creator of the universe may guard intact unto the end the number that hath been numbered of his elect throughout the whole world through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, once again, you have a reference to there being a fixed number of the elect. Um, so for uh, views of election that would um, say that there's the elect is just sort of a group that you put yourself into or not, and it's not necessarily a fixed number. This would be difficult to reconcile with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I actually specific and personal. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas it appears to be a, a fixed number that uh, Clement is thinking of and that it's already been numbered. It's already been counted. No nations, um, right? <laughs> no, no. He didn't there's... just pick a people, like the Romans 9 argument, right? Yeah. I just picked a people, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and then I wanted to combine this with an idea in First Clement uh, 64.1. Finally, may the all-seeing God and master of spirits and Lord of all flesh who chose the Lord Jesus Christ and us through him for a peculiar people grant unto every soul that is called after his excellent, most holy name, faith, fear. And then he goes on to list blessings for the, uh, the people. But uh, here we have it said that God chose us through Jesus for a peculiar people. So the choosing is on God's side. It is not on man's side. It's God that's choosing his elect for a people, for a peculiar people. Um, that's the way that it's done. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up in connection that we have a fixed number and it's God is the one who's doing the choosing, at least in Clement's mind. Yeah. And, and this seems to be a reoccurring theme in the book. Yeah. This idea of predestination and very explicitly. So not, there's not an illusion or, yeah. you know, well, you know, that's ambiguous. You could go either way. No, it's, it's explicit. It's like, mm-hmm. and it's seen as being, um, the plan of God, the father, and the plan of God the Son as well. It's not this disjointed um, understanding of the Trinity in terms of different wills or different intentions. There is one intention, one will, and that is to um, save a particular people. Um, so it, it's it's very. It seems to be a well-established doctrine at the time that uh, election, predestination, um, and God choosing a particular people and having a plan of redemption was very. Uh, was well established. All right. Well, we made it through first Clement. We made it through in a month. Was it four weeks, Sean? We did that. Yeah, it was four. I think. Yeah. Yeah. We made it through. It's very interesting study. Um, church history is a fascinating thing to dive into. Um, we need to do more of it. Uh, I think we would educate ourselves well and avoid many mistakes. If we, uh, if we knew our church history, um, but it's very helpful. And then, like I said, going from here, starting next week, we are going to dive into Dennis Prager's study on the Ten Commandments and do a study of the law of God and a critique of his uh, understanding of the Ten Commandments. Dennis Prager is a Jew, and he's coming at it from a very different understanding than what we would. So it's, um, it'll, I think it'll be a very helpful, um, a helpful study to dive into on the Ten Commandments, specifically on the law of God in general. So with that, we'll sign off. We thank you for joining us today. Have a great Lord's Day tomorrow, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. God bless.